Hello and welcome to another Who's He video podcast covering topics that we wouldn't normally talk about in our audio show. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a director associated with Doctor Who. However, this man's story is very unique. Despite having a long-standing connection to the show, this man never actually directed a single episode that aired. But why? Over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about a man whose ideas that were so out there, so damn risky, that the BBC was scared of him and his talent. I can only be talking about Wainscotting Mimsy. Wainscotting Mimsy began his career not in television, but in theatre. Having gained a reputation as the enfant terrible of provincial theatre companies, Western producers in London sat up and took notice after his bold production of Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof attracted severe attention. However, his cast consisted of real cats, including famous performance pussies Trixie Foo Foo as Margaret, Mr Lardy as Big Daddy, and Amazing Hardon as Brick. His interpretation won rave reviews in the Dudley Chronicle that read... Wainscotting Mimsy's unique twist to this classic story could have ended in disaster, but his clawsome talent for getting the best out of his catty cast without resorting to catnip should be applauded. Meownificent! After transitioning to London's glittering West End, the first play he directed was George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, in which he decided to cast geriatric British comedy actors in all the parts. Starring Irene Handel as Eliza Doolittle, Wilfred Bramble as Professor Henry Higgins, and Arthur English as Colonel Pickering. The play was a box office smash and won the London Evening Standard Award for Best Play in the Best Play from a List of Plays What People Have Seen category. But despite this instant theatre success, Wainscotting's true calling was television, and in particular science fiction television. Being an avid fan of Doctor Who since it launched in November 1963, he was fascinated by the constraints of a BBC budget and just how much a play each story was. He firmly believed that he could transfer his theatre directing talents to the small screen. But why didn't this happen? Even though he was now a big name in the world of theatre, the world of the BBC he found to be a very tough nut to crack. In fact, he had no success at all. Wayne's Cotting Mimsy's difficult relationship with the Doctor Who production office began in 1973, when he approached then-producer Barry Letts at a cocktail party hosted by On The Buses star Reg Varney. According to guests at the party, Mimsy accosted Barry Letts for the entire evening, begging for the chance to direct Doctor Who. At this time with the BBC, letting directors from theatre direct for television was not permitted, as they did not come through any BBC courses and were seen as a risk. However, Barry Letts, who was now worn down by Mimsy's relentless badgering, gave in an approach to the then controller of BBC television, Sir Paul Fox. When Letts floated the idea, Fox retorted, Over my f***ing dead body! But after a few drinks in the BBC bar, Fox agreed to give Mimsy a chance. This proved to be a disastrous decision. Barry Letts appointed Mimsy to direct the 1972 story, The Time Monster, which was the final story of that series. The story was duly budgeted and studio time was booked, but alarm bells started ringing when rehearsals began. Mims instructed his principal cast of John Pertwee, Katie Manning, Roger Delgado and Nicholas Courtney to simply recite the script into microphones. Pertwee even remarked at the time this was like being back on the Navy Lark, the long-running BBC radio comedy series that he starred in. However, when Mimsy put in a request for two yards of string and the extensive use of CSO, questions were asked in the upper echelons of the Doctor Who production office. 
Completely forgetting that Mimsy's theatre productions were very experimental, they did not realise they intended to have the entire story made with the actors replaced with knotted string, with the cast merely voicing their part. Mimsy actually filmed a few scenes with this method, though very little of it actually still survives. However, we have managed to secure what remains of this fascinating footage. Lights. When Barry Letts viewed this, he was uncharacteristic in his anger, and reportedly kicked Terence Dick squarely in the nuts, as he just happened to be to hand at the time. He immediately summoned Mimsy to his office and sacked him on the spot. Mimsy reportedly threw the remains of the string onto Barry Letts' desk and proclaimed that Letts wouldn't recognise real talent, even if it introduced itself as Mr Real Talent. However, this left Letts with a problem. With most of the budget blown on Mimsy's string actors and no director, the effects for the Kronos monster was drastically changed from a life-size puppet to a man in a budgie suit flying around the set like Peter Pan, as played by Bonnie Langford. Bored of Mimsy? Well, this was not the end of his attempts at directing a Doctor Who story. In fact, he had another go some years later. However, during the intervening years, he returned to the theatre, where his productions became more and more bizarre. For example, his production of Waiting for Godot starred two jars of Hellman's mayonnaise, and his first attempt at a musical production, Jesus Christ Superstar, got through 148 Jesuses as he insisted on real crucifixions for every performance. But then, in 1982, he was personally approached by the then controller of BBC One, Alan Hart, to direct another season closer, Time Flight. However, little did everyone know in the Doctor Who production office, which had changed significantly under the new showrunner, John Nathan Turner, that this was all part of Michael Grade's plot to kill off Doctor Who. When J&T discovered that Mimsy was being foisted upon him as director, he proclaimed, Over my f***ing dead body. However, after J&T had secured the use of Concord and Heathrow Airport, Mimsy was instructed to make as much use of these facilities as possible. However, it wasn't long before Mimsy's eccentric directing style started to rear its head once again. Once Mimsy took a look at Concord, it immediately decided that none of the sets were required. All of the story could be set inside the aircraft. An aircraft that was basically a gigantic cigar tube with hardly any headroom that was incredibly expensive to put in the air. So when film began, Mimsy assembled one cameraman and one soundman and took Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton up into the wild blue yonder and told both actors to play all the parts whilst the plane did a barrel roll. Janet Fielding wrote afterwards, It was a f***ing joke! I kept banging my f***ing head on the f***ing roof of the f***ing plane! I complained to f***ing John Nathan f***ing Turner as soon as the f***ing plane landed! He couldn't f***ing believe what had f***ing happened and said he would f***ing tear Mimsy a f***ing new one. Once again, Mimsy was fired from the production for his wild excess and for also using three quarters of the budget. This was exactly what Michael Grade had planned all along. A wild, unpredictable director that would cause havoc and bring the production to a halt. However, Grade, who didn't actually work for the BBC at the time, had encountered on JNT's the show must go on mentality and Grade was angered when J&T still managed to complete the story using a model of Concord and a tonne of used chewing gum. However, Mimsy's eccentric directing style indirectly led to this story to be one of the least well-regarded stories in Doctor Who's history. After this debacle, Wayne Scott in Mimsy was officially placed on the BBC's blacklist. However, the BBC's blacklist was far more sinister than it first appeared. 
This letter from the BBC archives dated the 23rd of November 1983 explains the blacklist's shadowy nature. Dear John, we cannot have any further intrusions by this Allenbrook person. He may well be the darling of the West End, but to the BBC he has a liability. The spend on time flight went way over budget and was basically a repeat performance of the overspend on the Time Monster in 1972. To this end, Alan Brook is now officially on the BBC blacklist. If that man should show his face in the BBC again, blacklist article 43 should be invoked and the hat will be called into service to deal with the matter. I trust that the mention of the hat will put your mind at ease as it dealt with many an unwanted problem in the past. Yours sincerely, Michael. But just who was the hat? And why was Michael Grade signing letters when he wasn't actually working at the BBC? Rumours circulating the BBC at the time suggested that the hat was none other than Leonard Pierce, known for the role of Grandad in Only Fools and Horses. Though never proven, the hat was the BBC's fixer and contract killer who was responsible for making troublesome or unwanted BBC styles disappear. It has been a long held belief that the hat was involved in the disappearance of Freddie Parrotface Davis, Val Dunican's cardigan, and the mole on Nana Muscuri's chin. But was the hat involved in the disappearance of Wainscotting Mimsy? While Mimsy was never seen again after attempting to break into Jan T's office with another idea to make an episode of Doctor Who using Martin Clunes as the bad guy, it cannot be said if he did indeed meet his end at the hands of the mysterious hat. But as we know, Jane T did indeed hire Clunes for snake dance and dressed him up to look like an Aztec ponce. While we will never know what happened to Mimsy, there is a lesson to be learnt. Directing is not an easy gig. Yes, it requires creativity and vision, but it also requires structure and discipline, something that Mimsy didn't have. He was too wild, and it looks like he paid the ultimate price. So if you're thinking of becoming a director of BBC television, be warned. Don't think out the box too much. You might just meet the hat. See you next time.